This is The Channel, a podcast from the International Institute for Asian Studies. Welcome to The Channel. I'm your host, Benjamin Linder. Today on the podcast, I'm happy to be joined by Edwin Petersma. Edwin is an historian and anthropologist who specializes in modern and colonial Asian history. Broadly, his research focuses on the concepts of modernity and colonialism in Japan, Taiwan, and Thailand. Edwin is an alumni of a special initiative here at ES, the Double Degree Program in Critical Heritage Studies of Asia and Europe. This program encourages an interdisciplinary, multi-sided, and critical approach to issues of heritage broadly conceived. It's a partnership between multiple institutions, which enables students to study at multiple universities over the course of the program. In Edwin's case, he received an MA in Asian Studies from Leiden University in 2018, and an MA in Anthropology from National Taiwan University in Taipei in 2020. In addition, he received a certificate in Critical Heritage Studies from IIAS. In this conversation, Edwin and I discuss his research interests as well as his experience with the Double Degree Program. More information on the program and how to apply for it can be found on our website. But for now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Edwin Petersma. Edwin, thank you for coming on the channel to talk with me about your academic work and also your experience with the dual degree program. Of course, Ben. Thank you so much for having me. Very excited to talk with you today. Can you start by introducing listeners to your academic background and just kind of your personal history? What brought you to where you are now? Yeah, of course. So my name is uh, Edwin, and I'm originally from the northern part of the Netherlands, a province called Friesland. And when I was young, I was really interested in history, and that kind of led me towards doing uh, a history degree in the, at the University of Groningen, uh, which was a very interesting time. And when I was in my first year in Groningen, I got very interested in uh, the idea of Eurocentrism uh, in history and wanted to kind of fight against that. So I decided to enroll in a course about uh, non-Western history, uh, focusing specifically on Japan. And that has kind of changed my whole life because after I got so fascinated with Uh, modern Asian history, modern uh, Japanese history that I decided to study in Japan, go to Japan, uh, learn the language. And that has kind of set a precedent for uh, even this conversation, because upon my return, I got very much interested in modern Japanese, especially Meiji and colonial Japanese history, uh, which in the end led me to study at Leiden University, say, participate in this double degree, uh, learn Chinese, uh, go to uh, National Taiwan University to study there, to study anthropology there, and afterwards, uh, two years later, have this conversation with you today. What do you think it was that attracted you to modern Asian history in particular? I mean, if it 
could have been any kind of non-Western history. What was it about modern Asia that piqued your interest? I think what piqued my interest was when I was studying Groningen, the the focus was very much on Europe, but there was always this connection. Even when you were studying world history, there was always some sort of implicit connection to Europe or Europe kind of dominating. And um, at the time, I really wanted to fight against that, learn from other perspectives. And I just kind of stumbled upon Japan, I think, especially um, because in that seminar that I participated in, the focus was still very much in Europe. So I kind of rolled into uh, this little place in Japan called Beishima, which is the former Dutch trading post. Um, and I kind of learned about Japanese learning Dutch or um, trying to, in an area of seclusion, trying to learn more about the, the outside worlds. And that, for me, was so interesting and uh, such a different perception on, on the past that I thought it was worth studying more. And that just kind of kept on going. And I just found more entries or more different perspectives that just started to fascinate me more and more. So I think it's just maybe an accident, a happy accident that I stumbled into. I think you and I initially crossed paths because you were writing a book review for the International Institute for Asian Studies website, which you've done several times, but you've engaged with the Institute in a lot of different ways over the years. Was your first initiation to IIAS through the dual degree program at Leiden that you were, that we're about to talk about, or did you get involved with it somehow before then? No, I can positively say that's how I got involved with uh, the Institute was through the program. So I already made a little bit of connection with some of the professors because um, like I just said, when I came back uh, from Japan, finishing my studies in Groningen and I was interested in uh, studying at Leiden University, also doing the double degree, I reached out to some professors in particular, uh, Dr. Paskaleva, uh, who introduced me already a little bit to it or to the to the program, to the institute as well. But I think over the time, and especially once I was in Taiwan, that the connections with the institute kind of intensified more and more. And then, yeah, after uh, my return and with the pandemic, everything being online, I wanted to stay in contact with the institute. And so use it also as a way to read more academic sources. And so that's how we... Uh, stumbled upon each other through those uh, book reviews. So the double degree program in critical heritage studies was an IIS initiative that basically enables students to study at multiple institutions. And before we get to your particular experience with the program, can you just explain generally for listeners who might not know about it, what is the dual degree program, critical heritage program? Just explain what this what this is and how you experienced it a bit. Yeah, of course, definitely. So from what I know and from research I also did about uh, various programs like this is that this is very a unique program set up by the IAS. And from my perspective, it's really much about trying to break through this one-sided or um, kind of this 
hegemony maybe that heritage is because heritage is kind of this, and I know we will probably talk about this some more, heritage is kind of this strange term actually that we use so often and kind of just accept as something so inherently good, so important, uh, something that we can't really argue with. And I think what is so nice about this initiative from the IAS is that they're really trying to perhaps kind of go against that by showing that there are multiple perspectives. And so that in one way, that's very theoretical with um, with the name itself, with the critical heritage studies. But I also think it's very much uh, allowing students multiple perspectives by also studying in other places, uh, learning through different case studies, um, especially focused on Europe and on Asia, um, how do they deal with heritage and how do they understand it? Because both Europe and Asia are very, very important, I would say crucial actors in what heritage is and the production of heritage. So by kind of allowing their students to not just benefit from one perspective, which would maybe be the European perspective, but also allowing them to go to Asia, to study there, uh, maybe learn the language, connect with other researchers there. It really creates a, a much more in-depth perspective on even critical heritage studies that I don't think is found in any other place. How would you describe critical heritage studies as a field? And in particular, I'm interested in the critical part of critical heritage studies. What is that modifier doing to the field or to the discipline? Heritage studies as a term itself is very much focused on, okay, how do we preserve heritage? How do we uh, make it economically viable? How can we use it for, for tourism purposes? And Critical heritage is kind of going against some of the assumptions or kind of the, the theories, the, the concepts that are being used. And what especially I notice is that it's very much trying to focus on those different perspectives. So you could really say that during the, maybe in the 1980s, this kind of idea that heritage is not just unambiguous or good or whatever they perhaps assume that it was, but that it has sort of a hegemonic purpose to it or a kind of almost a political tool. And that's something that we should question because it is not just heritage as, as the side itself, but it's very much what we inscribe on the side and how we use it. So as an example, for instance, with UNESCO, with the World Heritage List, we have over 1,100 sites in the world. And out of this, over 500, around I think 530 now, are in Europe. So this small continent in the rest of the world has 530 or almost half, 50% of all sites in the world. And then for the Asia-Pacific Pacific region, they already have 268 or 270 sites, and, which is around one quarter. So just this one continent, so this one, two sides of, of uh, a continent, already has 70, 75% of the world heritage or what is perceived as the legacy, the past of the world. And it's kind of gotten to a point where we use it to celebrate the past 
but we always need to be very worried on why do we celebrate the past or how do we celebrate it? And especially with these international organizations such as UNESCO nowadays, there is a, every country wants to participate in it because they believe heritage is something that inherently good, but how something becomes world heritage and when it becomes world heritage and why it becomes world heritage are these fundamental ideas that says a lot about the country or the nation that inscribes them because it always has to go through the national government. They have to inscribe it. They have to recommend it. Then if it becomes this sort of maybe a tool or a playground for nation states, that also says a lot about their national identity or actually using heritage as more almost a contemporary practice. It's not anymore the site itself, but it's what we put on the site. And with that, it becomes it becomes actually a very contested idea, what it is, and something that I believe needs more attention as well. Hearing you talk, it strikes me that Leiden is a really interesting city to study critical heritage. Um, I've lived here for about two years now. And as you well know, having studied here yourself, it's a really historic town and also a town that is really proud of its history and really takes steps to commemorate it. So as you were speaking, I just wonder, what was your experience of being in Leiden particularly studying this? Did it change your view of the city at all that you were studying in? Leiden is a very interesting city and it is very, very proud of those memories. But at the same time, it's also the memories that they choose or the memories that they inscribe on the play. So a very uh, nice example is, for instance, that there is a house that is claimed that Descartes, the philosopher, used to live there, which is very uh, a plaque everywhere and is much remembered, or that idea of... Leiden University of being founded during the 80 years war, where it was one of the first cities that, as the, the legend goes, fought against the this, this Spanish and they actually were able to expel the Spanish. And as a reward, they could choose between a tax break for a certain amount of years or the first university and how we tell the story of why they chose that university, I think also is something that Leiden wants to be proud of or wants to tell that they chose it because they were perhaps very fond of knowledge or wanted to be you know, an, an, a cultural center in some form of way. But again, that is a story that we tell or we kind of made mythical. Uh, an, another example is uh, when I was living in Leiden, I was working at the Museum Volkenkunde as a tour guide, uh, which is very, very lovely. Uh, but they are also in that museum, they have exhibitions, uh, which is very much focused on a special exhibition about Japan, uh, about China, one for Asia in general, one for Africa in general, which are very grand collections and very, very interesting. But the way the museum is set up, for instance, also shares a lot about the past of Leiden and uh, the past of the Netherlands. Because one of the reasons that they have a special part or one of the biggest collections is Indonesia is, of course, because of the Dutch colonial past. 
but they also have a very large Japan collection. And Leiden is actually the only place in the Netherlands where you can study or always could study Japanese, Chinese, Asian studies as a discipline in itself is very much also because of that colonial past of Leiden being the formal trainer center for many colonial civil servants. And that past is uh, not always that reflected or has a dark side, but it's also part of the heritage. So question for Leiden would be as well, like how should we deal with that or how can we deal with something like that? Yeah, it's interesting that these are so clearly related histories. You were talking about the relative absence of UNESCO sites, for example, beyond Europe compared to how many Europe has. And these are intertwined stories, right? On the one hand, the absence is itself a story, say, we're not telling ourselves about history. And the presence of more sites in Europe is also inextricably linked to that colonial project often. So it's a really interesting way of approaching history and questions of heritage, which brings us back to the dual degree program. Can you say a little bit more about the structure of the program? What degrees are you earning through this program and what kinds of courses are you taking? So what is nice about this program is that it is um, an enhancement towards uh, your degree. So in Leiden, you have the, the Asian studies, usually the one-year program, 60 ECTS, and of that 10 ECTS are used, so kind of your free space uh, you use for this program. Usually it is two courses that uh, you follow, and then you also write a thesis on a related topic, especially focused on the topic of critical heritage study. An example is uh, what I did is that I wrote my thesis on how Japanese museums are dealing with or incorporating the colonial legacy. How do they talk about it? Do they even talk about it? Or how is it reflected in the way that they represent um, minorities in their country, uh, like the Ainu, or um, how they represent former colonial subjects like the Koreans? And then once you finish the Leiden part, you get your degree, and then because you did this specialization program, you can go abroad. So right now there are two universities, um, but I know they're constantly trying to improve it or find new partners, which is very, very exciting. Um, and one of the partners is Yonsei University. So either you started Yonsei or you started Leiden and then you switch or you study at National Taiwan University in Taipei, Taiwan, which what 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 I did. And there you then continue either uh, in the Department of Anthropology or in the Department of Engineering, where they focus on building and planning. Um, so on different aspects of heritage, more theoretical in the sense of anthropology, a more classical approach, I think, or the building and planning, which really focuses more on um, the architectural or the spatial side of heritage. And then at both universities, so either at Yonsei or at NTU, you can, you also have to write a thesis, but the topic that you wrote in Leiden, you could use that topic, you could expand uh, your thesis with around 10,000 words, I think. 
So your master's in Asian studies from Leiden University was completed in 2018, and then you got your second master's in anthropology from National Taiwan University in 2020, um, as well as this critical heritage studies certificate from IIAS. So that's sort of all wrapped up in this program that you pursued at Leiden. Can you say a little bit more about your thesis? I'm really interested in how you chose this topic of Japanese museums and how they deal with colonial history and colonial memory. Yeah, of course. Uh, very nice to hear that you're interested in it. I'm actually trying to rewrite it now to see if I can publish it as an academic article as well, because uh, I think it's very interesting as well. So this kind of stemmed from my earlier interest in, in Japanese modern history and Japanese uh, colonial history. And during my bachelor's, actually, I wrote my thesis about the formation of museums in Japan. So museums in Japan are very much linked to the establishment of the nation states. It's very much a Western product in that sense, um, and then translated in Japan once they opened up after 1854. And they really wanted to use it to also change, the country change the narrative about their country and, and for the Japanese people as well to feel Japanese. And many of these museums still exist. The first museum was the, what is now the Tokyo National Museum, of course, in, in Tokyo, Japan. What I wanted to do with my thesis at Leiden is to kind of combine my interest, my specializations. Um, I was continuing my Japanese studies, uh, trying to learn more from the specialization centers in Leiden on, on Japan and on East Asia in general. And yeah, also the, the work at the museum and the critical heritage studies, they kind of all fit mixed together. And I was doing some courses in Leiden actually about museum history and also hands-on research experience uh, in museums. So I wanted to use, combine all those strengths. So I decided to do research on the representation of the Ainus and Koreans in Japanese museums. Um, and then during the summer of 2017, I went to Japan for three months to do my own research as well, read the exhibition catalogs and look at the contemporary exhibition uh, of two museums, so of the Tokyo National Museum and of the National Ethnographic Museum in Osaka. And look over a period of 40 years how they described Ainu and Koreans um, and how that reflected changes or how that reflected, in a sense, a colonial discourse or legacy of a colonial discourse. And I can say, based on my research and my conclusion, is to an extent it's definitely still there, but you can also see many opportunities of change or um, especially recent changes with more of a focus on agency and of doubt that in the past wasn't there so much. So they often use the colonial or the collections they gathered during the colonial times uh, that have their own uh, assumptions as well about what Korean heritage ought to be and what the Ainus are supposed to be and the 
heritage they don't have or we don't have anymore. And it's nice to see that they are trying to to change some of that, that those dynamics by really focusing on ideas of agency or also doubts that there's much information missing, that people are changing, that people at that time also just had difficult decisions to make. Have you had a chance to share any of your work yet with colleagues in Japan? Or perhaps this is the article you're going to write and that will be the thing you circulate. But I just wonder if you've had any reaction from colleagues or friends in Japan about your thesis. No, sadly enough, not because what kind of happened was that... um, so I decided to expand this thesis idea, uh, mainly with anthropological theories and ideas on how to combat a colonial legacy within museums. And I finished this dissertation in 2020, so at NTU. Uh, and then I was planning to go back, uh, try to rewrite it. Uh, but then, as we all know, the beginning of 2020 was a very rough rough time for most of us. So it kind of distorted many things. So unfortunately, I haven't been able to revisit much of it or have been able to to share it so much because the pandemic kind of took me out of the academic environment. So yeah, I think that's something a lot of us who were graduating around that time can relate to. But getting back to the dual degree program and your course of study, Asian studies, anthropology, and critical heritage studies, of course, they share a lot of overlap. They're similar in a lot of ways, but they're also distinct fields of study, distinct disciplines. In your experience, how did the program manage to balance teaching these different fields? I think that the programs were trying very, very hard to accommodate this, but it was also still relatively new. So, uh, For Leiden, I think it was quite well established because especially through the efforts of the IAS and in particular Dr. Paskaleva, really, really trying to establish this as a solid part of the degree, uh, really trying to motivate, uh, connect students, really making it a central part of their degree and not just an extra bonus or an extra specialization program for Yonsei, it's hard for me to say because I haven't studied there, but I can say for NTU, uh, when I was studying there in 2018 to 2020, is that because I was the second student, that it was still a bit of figuring it out at times. So one of the things was that there teaching method or structure is also very different than than Leiden or the European way. So that's something that students sometimes have to get used to. Um, Traditionally, the program in Taiwan is very academically focused, is very much focused on also trying to participate in academic conferences, really focusing on academic development or as a preparation for a PhD. So following the American system to that extent. But I saw the that there was very a lot of potential and they were very, very eager, very, very willing to accommodate me as a second person doing this degree, uh, someone who also didn't have a Chinese language background at that time. I was studying 
Chinese for Mandarin for over a year, but I wasn't able to master it completely yet. So they were trying to accommodate me in that as well. Uh, they were creating new courses, uh, new affiliations within their own degree to also allow for more room in this um, on the idea of heritage. Uh, working together with their counterparts of archaeology, which was is quite a big, strong field uh, at NTU as well. Um, and the the third thing was that they were really really trying to open it up. Um, they had quite a lot of space for other courses, allowing you a lot of freedom in that. Finding courses on, for instance, indigenous studies and the new new trend in Taiwan about recognizing their Austronesian heritage, discussing that, also co connecting it to other fields of study such as museology or history. So they are kind of opening it up. So I'm not sure how much has changed in the last two years since I left uh, NTU. But it was really, really promising, really, really nice to see how willing they were, how kind they were to accommodate this program or willing to incorporate it for their students and for students that are originally from Leiden. How did that experience of attending multiple universities as part of one course of study affect the, that course of study? What was your experience of having these different sites of learning as part of this program? I think that that is one of the important advantages of this program, uh, not just studying at one university or studying in one field, but really focusing on that interdisciplinary uh, studies by not just only doing area studies or not only doing heritage studies or not only doing anthropology or not only doing history, but actually allowing you to study in multiple continents, in multiple fields, in multiple languages. So I've studied in English, I've studied in Dutch, I've studied in Mandarin during these two years. And really also learning from different disciplines because a very nice example is um, at NTU, they really, uh, they offer you courses on fundamental theories of anthropology and of archaeology, um, studying, for instance, the classics like Durkheim or Marx, which are very, very different interpreted in the field of anthropology than they are in the field of history. So for me, that was quite an eye-opener and by learning from different disciplines, I think that it helps you to create a certain level of awareness that one needs for a critical approach or a critical way of thinking. And in this program, you do that not only academically, but also culturally and geographically and linguistically. In an essay that you wrote in 2021, actually for the newsletter here at IIS, you said that transitioning from Leiden to Taiwan also came with some challenges in addition to these benefits that you just laid out. And 
I mean, you just mentioned, for example, in your previous answer that the teaching styles can somehow be different at times. So I just wonder, what were some of these other challenges and how did you deal with them once you got to NTU in Taiwan? Yes, uh, for anyone who is interested in following the program, I would definitely recommend to read that article and also uh, maybe send me an email, ask some questions or asking Pascaleva or asking the Institute. But I also have to say that much has changed. So I think what kind of was the case for me as being the second person doing this uh, program at NTIU from Leiden, uh, the first semester also being the only Dutch person, the only non-Taiwanese following the program. Um, there were quite a lot of kinks that I think still needed to be resolved. Um, and because I was the, I would say I was the first one formally doing the program because with the first person uh, doing the program, there were some exceptions or changes um, that were not sustainable. So because of that, I found it quite challenging because the program was mostly taught in Mandarin and I was made aware that that was very important, that the language itself is important to learn. And I was really wanting to learn that as well. But I studied, I started studying it when I got to Leiden, uh, just before I left Taiwan. And then the first six months in Taiwan, I spent learning Mandarin full time. But of course, one cannot learn a language and the cultural set that it provides in a year or so. So for me, that was also a bit hard and also the transition from a very European uh, system where everything is very carefully laid out in syllabus, where there's a lot of regulations on the terms of reading that you can do, uh, very restricting to some extent. Um, what I noticed in Taiwan or the system they were following there is that they wanted to provide more freedom or creativity for uh, the NTU, which is very, very nice, of course, but can also be quite demanding because that freedom allows the course to get its own flow, but can also mean that it can be quite challenging at times, uh, which is something we need to take into account and can be quite difficult. So overall, going back to the program in general, were there any courses or professors or experiences that kind of stick with you from your time in the Critical Heritage Studies dual degree program? Yeah, actually, I have uh, a lot of names and probably too, too many that I can uh, share with you, so I won't share them all. Uh, but I think, especially for professors or people that I've met at that time, uh, are the ones that struck me most. So one of the key figures is Dr. Elena Poskaleva, who has been incredibly kind, incredibly helpful uh, from the beginning, always communicating very clearly, always pushing her friendliness and passion towards the max in order to, to help us become better scholars or become better professionals. So for that, we've always been very, very uh, grateful um, and still keeping in frequent contact. So I'm very, very happy about that. Another very interesting kind professor we met was 
Michael Hertzfeld, who is one of the professors, anthropology professors from Harvard, uh, who gives a special lecture and uh, also very helpful and very um, impressive with his line of thought and uh, his knowledge and his eagerness to share that with us. So really helping us to also share our knowledge. Another example is Philippe Vekam, who is uh, now the director of the IAS, and it's his uh, friendliness and kindness and his, yeah, always just being fun to be around and helping uh, many students along the way, trying to help them academically and trying to stay connected with the Institute that I'm very, very grateful for. And then especially from uh, Taiwan, I've always been very, very uh, impressed by Dr. Kai Shu Lin, who was the uh, director at that time of the Department of Anthropology, always his door open, always allowing us in. Um, another professor that was extremely kind, extremely helpful was my thesis supervisor in Taiwan, Dr. Zhang Zhengheng. Uh, who I still try to keep in contact with as well, sharing his information and always meeting him up for a cup of coffee or dinner, discussing my work and our progress. He's very, very uh, friendly as well. Uh, and many other teachers, such as uh, David Cohen, who was uh, extremely helpful and professional and really giving us multiple perspectives on Taiwan, which was very, very uh, helpful. And then I think, just for general experience, what this double degree kind of allowed me to do was connecting what I'm learning with other professional experience, such as working at the Museum Folkenkunde, doing professional work for the National Taiwan University Museum, traveling a lot around East Asia, Southeast Asia, uh, also traveling for traveling to Japan to do my primary research. Uh, I also did some primary research at Green Island uh, in Taiwan about the representation of dark heritage, in particular uh, the white terror period in uh, Taiwan. So yeah, I think what just mostly stuck for me was just the, the kindness of the people enhanced by the many opportunities and experience that I could do in those three, three years. What advice would you give to students who may be listening now and are interested in pursuing the double degree program in critical heritage studies? I think I would say to them, don't be scared by my experience, but learn from it and go with it with all your heart. And so since my experience, since I left Taiwan, uh, many things have changed as well for the better. They're really focused on listening to you to enhance the program. And the double degree gives so much more than just studying uh, courses at these universities, but can give you so much more perspectives, which is very helping you to develop academically, but also personally, that I, with knowing everything that happened and reflecting on that, I still wouldn't have missed it for one minute. 
as we start to wrap up our conversation here, I want to ask what you've been doing since graduation. Previously, you mentioned that you had kind of the unfortunate timing of finishing your thesis right before the global pandemic set in. So what have you been doing since you finished your dual degree program? And what do you have planned for the future academically? Yeah, I just, (laughs) I have to be very, very honest. And uh, I have to admit that the time right after COVID was not the easiest. Um, So right after I graduated from NTU in January 2020, uh, when COVID was already um, acting in uh, East Asia, Taiwan already closed its borders. Uh, I actually decided to take a break from Taiwan because of the quite intensity. Um, And I was trying to set up a new career in Thailand, actually. But that's didn't work as well. So in March 2020, I returned uh, back to the Netherlands and had to do quite some adjusting. And with the how the pandemic was continuing, it was hard to get back into the academic field. Uh, so in 2021, I decided to move back to Thailand and I became an academic lecturer here, focusing specifically on English and academic skills and been using my free time, the main time, to keep up my academic knowledge. So reading academic works, that's how we got in contact as well with the book reviews as a way to keep up those skills. But also I moved to Thailand to do uh, something different, which was to learn Thai, because I actually have a uh, research in mind that I think is worth exploring, uh, which is to look at how both Japan and Thailand reflected ideas of modernity and colonialism uh, between 1868 and 1912. So I'm writing, uh, written some research proposals about that. And now I am applying to different PhD positions, also working on turning my thesis from NTU, from Leiden NTU into an academic article and I'm actually writing an other academic article about imagination of Indonesia and colonial past from uh, minority literature in the Netherlands. And lastly, I'm now working on opening or starting my own website where uh, I want to share my historical and anthropological insight and research that I've done on Europe East Asia and Southeast Asia, uh, with the very nice title, historywithedwin.com. So I hope to launch that and use my experience, my knowledges to connect and reconnect to a wider audience. Because one of the things that the studies uh, in living in Japan, Taiwan, the Netherlands, and Thailand have taught me is very much the connectivity between us all. And I feel that that deserves a lot more attention. So hopefully I can spend my professional and academic career uh, highlighting that, questioning those assumptions. Um, And I think many of those critical thinking also comes from my participation in that program. So with that, I hope to be very much well connected to the IAS uh, in the future as well. 
I wish you all the best with that. And I hope as you continue on your research academic journey, you'll keep the Institute in mind and continue joining us on the podcast, continue writing for the newsletter as you have done in the past. Edwin, thank you very much for coming on the podcast and talking to me. I really appreciate you taking the time, particularly with the time zone difference between Holland and Thailand. So thank you very much. Definitely. You're very welcome. Thank you for uh, the interview. It's always a blast to talk about my experience and I hope uh, to help many students if they're interested in that, in this program to achieve their ideal as well. That was Edwin Petersma, a graduate of the Dual Degree Program in Critical Heritage Studies of Asia and Europe. Thank you for listening to the channel. Please subscribe to receive all future episodes. This podcast is brought to you by the International Institute for Asian Studies, a globally oriented institution based at Leiden University in the Netherlands. We are dedicated to fostering an integrated, multidisciplinary understanding of Asia and beyond and we would love for you to get involved. For more information on our conferences, webinars, publications, and fellowship program, please visit eas.asia. That's iias.asia. See you next time. <laughs>